down a little bit so this doesn't become too academic uh, because there is at this moment just such incredible gospel scholarship that is available on the Book of Mormon. But, I, but I, we talked last week about uh, trying to give some background information on uh, Joseph Smith and so we, we lived a lot in 1827, 1828, 1829. Uh, today we're going to go back about 600 BC and I need you to have the other perspective of exactly what was going on in Jerusalem at 600 BC. And this was, and I don't know if I can underestimate this, this was a turning point in Jerusalem's history and in Jewish history. Uh, and again, I'm not going to talk too much, but I need you to really get what really occurred because uh, the, the paradigm, the way that scholars in the church have looked at Jewish history has changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Some of the writings of uh, Margaret Barker and others have, have changed the paradigm of Old Testament scholars within the church fairly uniformly. So that we're all seeing a, basically the same thing. And what we're finding out is that what Jews believed and taught in 600 B.C. was much different than what they were teaching and believing in 700 B.C. The change was that dramatic. And those changes are going to come together in a cataclysmic uh, conflict enough that, that it results really in a lot of what happens with uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying Jerusalem. And you're going to see it happen in Lehi's family that we'll talk about next week. And you will see that it has long-term effects into a thousand years of Book of Mormon history and things like the king men are going to come out of this period of time uh, in some ways that are just kind of... And Laman and Lemuel's beliefs are all... Like I say, we'll talk about that next week. But let me just set this up. And, and the, we're going to do the shorthand version of this again. I don't want to make this too scholarly. But basically, here's what happened right at this period of time. Um, there was... Um, when, when Josiah's father was killed, uh, Josiah is placed on the throne about eight, when he's about eight years old. Uh, as a king, he inherits a kingdom that is actually fairly splintered belief-wise. Uh, there is a set of beliefs. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of idolatry going on around them. And then about 622 B.C., in trying to renovate the temple one of Josiah's priests will discover the book of the law. And we're pretty sure that this is the book of Deuteronomy that we're talking about. It might have been something in addition to that. Uh, but when the book of the law is discovered, and really it is the law of Moses that they had not been following very well, that had been changed and been altered a bit. So here is the book of the law, Deuteronomy, most likely. And Josiah looks at it and he says, we had gone way astray, we're not doing this. And so he's going to do a couple of things. One, he's going to ask that the book of the law be read to everybody, generally. And then he's going to turn it over to the scribes to start writing down the book of the law so that we can then give it to the people to begin to learn. Now, the scribes, the, the wise men inside the temple, aren't just scribing. 
the, the scribes in there are also changing and altering what they're finding to meet what they believe should be happening. So what happens is the religion of Judaism is going to change in some very dramatic ways and it's on an axis right about 622 B.C. And then it will be codified, it will be written into Deuteronomy and into the law and now they will go forward with a different set of beliefs than they had prior to that. Does that make sense? Now, how do we know this? Well, the, the, the shorthand is, is that uh, as we have gone back through and looked not just at Deuteronomy, and you look at some of the differences between Deuteronomy and Exodus and Genesis and 1 Kings, we also look at those, outside, those documents outside the, the Bible that didn't make it into the canon, books like 1 Enoch and, and those kind of books out there, and they uniformly tell a whole different story about what exactly made it into Deuteronomy. Now, again, I'm giving you the short version and I'm not filling in a lot of stuff, but I'm just saying, because the, the, the research out there coming out of BYU and BYU scholars in general is fairly unified on all of this. But I'm just giving you the short version of this. But let, so let me boil it down. So here's what King Josiah's reforms begin to look like. Uh, and again, this is 620 B.C. When will Nebuchadnezzar come rolling in? About 601. So we're about 20 years to countdown before Jerusalem is going to really kind of be captured and destroyed. And this major religious upheaval is in the process of happening and just has taken root. Okay? Questions so far? Not really, and but Josiah is really behind. He's fine with all of this because, in a sense, this is this is almost like um, parents that have found out that their kids are kind of messing up, and now we're going to institute a lot of strict rules to make sure that you guys aren't going. We're going to put a rule for this and a rule for that, and we're going to make sure, and we're just going to get very, very rigid to make sure that you guys don't mess up anymore. And so, yeah, even though we're probably altering some things, we need to do it because they've been really bad. And because I really revere the law, I love the law of Moses, I don't want us to be doing bad stuff. But this overreaction means that they're going to throw out an incredible amount of uh, what we call the, the wisdom religion. And I'll, I'll explain that in a sec. They're going to throw that out along with the idolatry. Was there any Yes, thank I'm glad you asked that. That's what's going to get us Jeremiah and Lehi and those that support the law of Moses, but they are going to be preaching in the streets. Well, we're going to see in 1 Nephi, they're preaching it in the streets, not so much against the law of Moses, but against the changes that have occurred. And that's why they're going to be stoned because they are holding fast to an older religion that was there. That's the very conflict we're talking about. Is King Zedekiah around the same time? Zedekiah will come in about 20 years because oh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to put him on the throne. Oh, okay. 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 All right. So what is that? What, are, what reforms are we talking about? Uh, they're going to rediscover and edit the book of Deuteronomy. What is that? It means a strict adherence to the letter of the law and to the law of Moses. Um, 
it, it means, for instance, that all sacrifices must be limited to the temple. You get this, you get this recommitment to everything is supposed to happen in the temple. You don't offer sacrifices anywhere else. The wisdom theology that had been going on that they received from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had said, when we're, when we're rejoicing, we may, we may offer a sacrifice. We may build an altar. Think about what Jacob did and think about what Abraham did. They would, they would celebrate and they would set up an altar and they would offer sacrifice. Lehi will do that. That's what's going to get him in trouble with Laman and Lemuel. But that's part of it. No sacrifice can occur outside the temple and they're going to strictly, so they can then control it and, and guide where it's supposed to go. Okay? Why? I have a question. Yeah. How much sacrificing would people pay? A lot. A lot. Because here's, here's what you got. Here's what was going on. There were those that were sacrificing righteously... And they were offering uh, in the high places. Sometimes we talk about the high places and the groves and things that were some Baal worship, but some of that was very righteous worship. They were doing both. So there were a lot of sacrificing happening out there and offering offerings on these altars that they were building. And some were righteous and some were Baal worship. And, and Josiah is going to come through and say, let's just clean it all out and only in the temple, boom. That's the problem. So was the sacrifices in the temple covered everybody or did they have just a whole bunch? Of yeah, that was ultimately when we, like for instance, when we get the uh, uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement, remember the priest is going to come in and he's going to offer sacrifices for who? All of Israel. All at once. Because you're not supposed to be doing any sacrifices outside of the temple. Now, by the way, does that affect Judaism today? Are you supposed to be doing sacrifices outside the temple? No. This philosophy that started in 600 B.C. is still in play in Judaism today. That's why the legs to this thing are incredibly long. And the research says that there was a lot of research, a lot of... Um, uh, offerings and things happening in other temples and other settings outside of the temple prior to this. This is one of the shifts that occurred. Okay? Kevin? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. They don't have temples today. No, they don't. And so part of the belief of Judaism is that we don't have a temple. We can't do sacrifices. Because only sacrifices can happen in the temple. So that, that's why I say it's affecting even... So do they think when they do get a temple they're going to start that again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One day we'll get another temple. And then, then we can reinstitute sacrifices. Okay? So why, why do they not do that? The temple mount. Because they don't have the temple. Because I mean, why don't they have the temple? Why don't the they build the temple? Oh, well, because for one thing, when, when, when we had the dysphoria, which was, first of all, the exile, that Babylon came in and hauled us off. Then we come back, we rebuild the temple, we can do sacrifices there. Then, then the Romans are going to destroy it. And now we're really spread out from 70 A.D. onward, and we've never been able to get back and rebuild the temple yet because, for one thing, the Dome of the Rock is sitting right on right the Temple Mount, and we got to fight, you know, how many billion Arabs or Jews or uh, Muslims? Muslims. 3.2. 3.2 billion? We're going to have to fight 3.2 billion Muslims to put the temple back where it's supposed to be on top of Mount Moriah. 
So they can't build it anymore. No, not until that Dome of the Rock goes away. <laughs> so that ain't happening anytime soon. Okay? Uh, so, you get this sense, so it can only happen in the temple. Uh, and uh, belief in Israel's righteousness, you are, then, you are now saved by adherence to the law. If you are living the law strictly, you are righteous, and if you are righteous, you are saved. Even if I'm, if I'm cheating the poor and starving everybody and charging extra money in the temple you know, for the, for the Sadducees at the time of Jesus and I'm making extra money and stuff like that, as long as I live the law of Moses, dang it, I am saved. Oh, the, the ramifications. Some of this ought to look really, really familiar. Because, the, so, so by the way, so the Jews, so, so this is why, the, well, hold on. We'll keep on going. Yeah. Okay, so, so far this would, there's nothing wrong with this, is there? If you're just looking on the outside, if you are a Jew living at this time and you say, we're supposed to sacrifice in the temple and we're going to keep the strict law of Moses. We should be alright. No harm, no foul. Right? This should be okay. Here's the downside. There's the unintended consequences. And this is the downside. Persecution of false prophets. Who would be a false prophet? Everybody. Everybody that what? <laughs> That disagrees with the reforms because now you're you what you hate the law of Moses? No, I'm had I've had a vision, a vision of what of God. Whoa, because in in throwing out all of the the wisdom theology, this was the stuff prior. Prophets had visions and they saw angels and look at Jacob's ladder and you got all of these people are having visions and they're get, being told by God things that they then teach to the people. These are prophets. These are visionaries. Under the Josiah reforms, what happened is anybody having visions that wasn't inside the law of Moses was a false prophet. That's the unintended consequence. That's where we're going. That's what gets us to 1 Nephi 1. That's why we're having this conversation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, the wisdom theology is, is really that we can gain wisdom from the heavens. That God will teach us stuff. That the heavens are open. Sound like sound familiar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sound like Joseph Smith? Mm-hmm. The heavens are open. No, it's not. It's not in the Bible. Well, he spoke to me. No, he doesn't speak to us. If it's not in the Bible, it's outside of that and you're a false prophet. It's the exact same parallels. The same story. If you can get the Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the first vision story, you're going to understand what's happening in Josiah at, the t- at this moment. Because it's the exact same thing. Instead of the Bible, it is the Torah and the law. And anything outside of that is blasphemy. From the, not just, I don't care what... You know, when, when we're out there trying to say to somebody, we have a Book of Mormon. Really? Don't you want to read more of the words of Jesus? Wouldn't everybody want to read more of the words of Jesus? No! Why? It's not in the Bible! 
I have a Bible. Well, that's short-sighted. I know, but I'm not even going there. Because it's not in the Bible. It's that same mentality. And that's what was happening with the Torah. It's not in this book. Therefore, it doesn't matter whether it was Jeremiah or whether it was Lehi or anybody else. It's not part of the law of Moses. Throw it out, false prophet. Okay? They had contributed to that, Isaiah, you know, a hundred years earlier, and all that was part of that. But now we're going, now from this moment on, if it ain't in the book of Deuteronomy, we're throwing it out. But there is a certain amount of that wisdom stuff that we're not sure about other teachings, but if there's a question between Isaiah and the Torah, we're taking the Torah. Yeah. It was a reformation. It was a reformation and a reclaiming. And, and if we could talk to one of these uh, Deuteronomists at the time of Josiah, they would say they had a very sacred work to do to protect the law. So generally very good intentions. They, they were very much like, very much like the Pharisees. In the sense that the Pharisees, their intention was to protect the law. And we're going to protect it so much that we're going to build fences and walls around the law, which is, we're not just going to make sure you live the Sabbath day, but we're going to prescribe what living the Sabbath day looks like, and we'll add extra stuff to it. And, and the Pharisees had the greatest of intentions. You've got to be nice to those guys sometimes. You just think about, well, they're idiots. Well, we're going to do the same thing with Laman and Lemuel next week. They weren't idiots, and they weren't those spoiled, whiny guys that we've always claimed they were. They had a reason for why they were believing what they were believing. And it, and it was based in some in this. Protect the law. Protect the Torah. And by, and by the way, there's some self-serving here. If we protect the law and we make sure everybody lives the law of Moses, what does that protect us from? From who? Repenting. Well, they can, but they're going to repent. We're all repenting. Oh. So now we're living the law of Moses. What are we now safe from? Responsibility. Of having to look Invasions. <laughs> we are now safe from the, the Egyptians, from the Assyrians, from the Babylonians. Why? Because we're righteous. Do we have a time in Jewish history when... Uh, Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. They didn't have the army to defeat it. And God wiped them out. Hezekiah. Army's descending. It's going to be bad. And overnight an angel comes through and wipes out the whole army. So if we can't defend ourselves against the Egyptians and the Assyrians, but our, our national defense strategy is live the law, we will be protected. Right? What are Laman and Lemuel saying as they're going through the desert? We know Jerusalem hasn't been destroyed. Why? They were righteous. Why? And how do we know they were righteous? They kept the law. Well, here we know Nebuchadnezzar's got a big army, and here he comes. Yeah, but we're living the law. The angel will wipe them out. Isn't that weird? Their defense strategy was keep the commandments. Does that sound so bad? No. 
So you can see why there would be some well-intentionedness to say, because our prophets have been saying all along, do we want to be safe? Keep the commandments. That's what their prophets were saying. Keep the commandments. I think we do that a little bit these days. If we do everything right, then we won't have any challenges or any or difficulties or trials in if our I'm, lives. If I'm, if, if I'm obeying the law of tithing, mm-hmm. that should protect me from financial problems, shouldn't exactly. it? The family that prays together stays together, and if we're doing family home evening, that should protect me from... Kids falling away. Yeah. So there is a certain amount of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, like I say, as you're looking at these kind of things, this should really resonate with us because we're watching this around us. We're also watching what happened at the time of Joseph Smith. This this really connects. Yeah. So, did Joseph Smith when he was going to church? Was it not just the early Christian church that he was going, but also these I I listened to a podcast from a Catholic scholar who said exactly what you just said. What she said. What she's saying is what Joseph Smith restored was not just the the Book of Mormon and all that, but he's restoring the ancient religion. And that's what this Catholic scholar said. His understanding, as he's read Joseph Smith, is that Joseph Smith was restoring something much, much older that had been lost during the Deuteronomic uh, reforms. And that was this belief, and because as he reads the Book of Mormon, he finds a group of people that believe in the law of Moses, but they also believe in visions, and they also believe in extra doctrine. So they're believing in the law of Moses as a path to the Messiah. They're believing in Jesus and the law of Moses. Wow. That, what Joseph Smith restored is incredible because that hasn't existed for thousands and thousands of years. Okay. Does that make sense? All right. Notice we still haven't got to First Nephi one one. So that means rejection of any additional divine guidance outside the law. The Torah, Torah, we have a Torah. And strict punishment against performing sacrifices outside the temple. What would be, according to Deuteronomy, what would be the punishment for doing sacrifices outside the temple? Stoning and death. Okay. All right. So let me just give you kind of a hint, because we we're going to be seeing this more and more in the next couple of weeks. From uh, a BYU professor. The situation in Jerusalem after Josiah's reforms may shed some light on understanding Laban and Lemuel as well as illuminating some of the religious conflict that runs through the entire Book of Mormon. If you get, if you start to really understand Josiah's reforms, the Book of Mormon will change for you dramatically and you're going to see what drove a lot of what was going on, especially among the Nephites. Okay? Lehi's family may have been a microcosm of conflict in Jerusalem between those who espoused Josiah's Deuteronomic reforms and the pre-reform religion. Lehi's theology had affinities with the older religion that had visions and, and additional information coming from God that believed in the law of Moses but also believed in 
additional guidance and visions. Okay? And what we're going to find is that Laman and Lemuel, it turns out, were observant Jews that believed in the Deuteronomy forms, most likely. What if Laman and Lemuel were believers in the reform? Yeah, there is a certain there is a certain amount of lack of responsibility that goes with the checklist law of Mosesism. And by the way, so that also means that if I follow the checklist again, I can follow the checklist to the letter and make extra money off of the poor and be okay. I can follow that to the letter and cheat my neighbor and still be seen as righteous. Huh? Oh, it's much easier. Yeah. We're willing to give up some of that so we don't have to take responsibility. No, it just has to... Uh, am I righteous? I don't know. Can I check off that I did these things? Now, we never do that in the church, do we? How do I know if I'm righteous or not? Because what wasn't the basis of this... Brothers and sisters, what's the basis of this? Is what does it mean to be a good Jew? How do you define what is a good Jew? Well, in this case, it's are you following the law of Moses strictly? And if you are, you are righteous. And if you're not, you're not. And and we're going to have a discussion in the weeks to come. Is what does it take? What does the uh, take to be a good Mormon? What is involved in that? Because we could follow a strict commandment thing and still be missing some bigger pictures. Okay. Yeah. I don't understand how they could be having more than one prophet. I mean, we have our sinfulized, and if we have other people having visions, well, we don't accept that either. Right, but but we do accept. She, she says we don't accept other people having uh, visions as well, except that we do, and that is that. One of the things that we believe is that each one of us are entitled to promptings and inspiration and guidance in our own life. Right, but what we're rejecting is a, is a prophet saying, this is what the church needs to believe and President Monson's got it wrong so far. So you're right. And, and they would certainly have that under Jeremiah or Jacob or Abraham. The, the older wisdom doctrine said that well, whoever's going to be the prophet is going to have the heavens open to them and they're going to give us guidance but also in our, inside our own lives and families, we will also have guidance and direction. Well, you know what? Back with these reforms, we're not really believing the heavens are that open to you. You just need to be righteous. It's not getting guidance in your daily prayers. It's living the Torah, and you'll be fine. Okay? Yeah. I can kind of see, though, at that time period, that there may be more than one man, or more than one prophet receiving visions. Sure. Right. Well, and 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 Lehi's about to tell us there were many prophets. Why? We're twenty years away from Jerusalem being leveled. 
God speaking to as many prophets. I mean, I think he called. I think Lehi's early years were not as a prophet. I don't think he grew up as a prophet. I think he was a businessman and he had a very active. He'd done very well, but then he is called as a prophet. The Lord is getting everybody off the bench to say, "Get into the game. We got twenty years. Nebuchadnezzar is coming. Your king is sucking up to Egypt, and you're going to tick off Nebuchadnezzar, and he's about to wipe out your city." Get everybody into the game. We've got to save as many people as we can. He's talking to Jeremiah. He's talking to Ezekiel. He's talking to Lehi. He's talking to many prophets. And the official Deuteronomists are pushing back and are stoning and, and killing these prophets who are trying to warn about what's going to happen and saying, the law of Moses will not save you. Nebuchadnezzar is going to wipe you out. No, we're living the law of Moses. We're doing it right. No, you're not. You can and, and so you can see the battle. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Because we use prophets. To do the prophet. Good point. Yeah, there were. Yeah, exactly. What about bishops? As far as their wards concerned, they're entitled to receive revelation for that particular unit. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they are. They are. And see, that means the heavens are open. We're receiving. We're receiving guidance and counsel. Okay. Um, okay. So, so, so now we roll into 600 BC. Uh, remember that. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has come in. He has placed uh, a king on the throne. He didn't like how that one turned out. He's going to end up putting uh, Zedekiah on the throne, uh, who was actually Matthias or Mattias. And he's going to change his name to Zedekiah. We forget sometimes that Zedekiah's name, he was named by Nebuchadnezzar. Jerusalem is a vast state, it's been conquered. Uh, we also think, by the way, without, again, getting too complicated, our years are off by just a couple of years. Because in 601 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar will haul off 10,000 Jews to Babylon. Most of the rich, most of the, uh, the young artisans, stuff like that. And if Lehi is anywhere in the, in the area, he would have been hauled off. He's exactly the person that Nebuchadnezzar would have grabbed. So we're actually thinking the years are probably off by about three or four years. Uh, this has our, the Book of Mormon has um, uh, Lehi leaving about 597, I think, or five, and and we think it was probably closer to about 605 because he couldn't be because by then by that year uh, Nebuchadnezzar has already leveled. There's not much left of the people in Jerusalem. He's hauling off everybody. The only ones that are left are the really poor and destitute. In Jerusalem, there's not much left. But what's happened, remember that Nebuchadnezzar will... uh, They capture him, then they put a king on the throne, and the king on the throne is talking too much to Egypt, and and Jeremiah is going, no, don't talk to Egypt. And he's doing it anyway because they think they can suck up to Egypt, and then they're going to fight against Babylon... And it doesn't work. Nebuchadnezzar will conquer Jerusalem, roll around, beat the stuffings out of Egypt, 
And then he will come back and level Jerusalem for being a, a uh, cheating wife, what he would call it. And then haul everybody off. Okay? And it's about and it's about to occur here. So you just get this sense of, of everything happening. <laughs> We made it. We made it. First we find one one. We're only a class and a half. Yeah, it was nice that we finally got there. So who did Nebuchadnezzar believe in? Nebuchadnezzar is very is a uh, is an idolatrous worshiper. He's an idol worshiper. So he believes in himself basically. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar is kind of his own god. Yeah. Okay. No, one, no wonder he was chosen. Yeah, no wonder he's chosen by him. He was choosing him. Okay, so that said, um, all right. This is probably the most read verse in all of Mormondom. <laughs> this one, no. I, Nephi, have been born of goody parents. Therefore, I was taught in all the learning of my father. Having seen many inflections in the course of my day. We're going to come back to verse 1 in just a minute. I want to finish with verse 1. Because there's some really profound things that are there. But I want to kind of roll forward. I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. And I know the record which I make is true, and I make it with my own hand, and I make it according to my knowledge. Now, let me stop for a sec. If you talk to somebody about Joseph Smith and the gold plates... What are they gonna what are they gonna ask you about the gold plates? Where are they? And you're gonna say, Well, the angel took them back. And and, and their response is how convenient. Uh-huh. That Joseph made them up. Now, I love, the, I love the idea here, because this is gonna be a theme you're gonna hear all the way through the Book of Mormon. You ever watch uh, like the Law and Order and NCIS and all those kind of shows? If you have forensic evidence about something, you got a bullet, you got a hair, you got uh, DNA, something, you got something. Before you can, if they're going to take that evidence to court, what what becomes very important? The chain of evidence. Chain of control. We know it went from here to here to here to here. We can document exactly where that bullet was so that nobody messed with it along the way and did something to it so we can prove, yes, this is the bullet, what killed them. It's funny, when it comes to the evidence of the Book of Mormon, what you're going to hear from these prophets is is the chain of evidence. Who wrote the Book of Nephi? He did. How do we know? He told us. I, Nephi, write it with my own hands. Then, then we're going to get to Jacob. And what's he going to say? This is, the, this is the record of Jacob. How do I know? I wrote it. 
Then we're going to get all the way down the line, and we're going to go to Enos, and we're going to go to Chemish, and we're going to go... How do we know who wrote those? They did. How do we know? They told us. Every step along the way, every prophet is telling us, here is the record, and I know that it's true. Why? I wrote it with my own hands. Even the unrighteous ones said, I'm not very righteous, but hey, I saw my, my brother wrote it on the day that I got it, and I'm writing this on the day I wrote it. And so I saw it. Here it is. Okay. Then we're going to get all the way down to... So then the plates are going to finish with Moroni, and we know that Moroni wrote it because he told us, I'm Moroni, I write these things. I saw got them from my dad. He wrote his. Yep, here I am. I'm Ron, I got it. And the next, the next person to have it is Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith now has the record. And what does he say? I got it. I've, they, they're here. How do we know that Joseph Smith got it? He's got, he, not only does he say it, but who else is he going to pull in to a court of law? Three witnesses that get to see it at an angel and eight witnesses that are going to get a chance to just see the plates. I got a quorum of 12 that are going to say, we saw the plates. This chain of evidence says it goes from Nephi all the way to uh, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, and Oliver Cowdery. Unbroken. All the way through. How do we know? These plates, we can follow the, its history of that. I mean, if I'm, if I'm Joseph... You know, I'm looking at those plates and I'm looking at the interpreters and thinking, who touched these? Who was looking at them? Under what circumstances? These are very real. This is who who inscribed this and under whose handwriting? That's pretty amazing. So we get this, so so Nephi is going to be writing this in his Record, and he's going to tell you, I made it. I know it's true because I made. Nobody else wrote it. Chain of evidence says I know it's true because I did it in my own hand. Uh, and by the way, so so what language is the was the Book of Mormon written in? Reformed. Reformed Egyptian. Remember, Joseph when he first got it thought it was written in what language? Mm-hmm. Indian. He isn't going to get to this part. Until about two thirds of the way through the uh, through the uh, translation of the Book of Mormon, where he's going to go, oh, okay, there's the language. Now, what does that look like? Well, I want to give you an idea. This is uh, actually from uh, Saint Hugh Nibley. <laughs> Uh, the Egyptian had an interesting way of doing it. We're used to seeing Egyptian writing on, on uh, big walls and on a sarcophagus and King Tut and all of that. And you get these incredible, beautiful hieroglyphics. We're thinking, Nephi wrote in that? That seemed like that would take more work to do this great uh, thing. Well, no. What happened is the hieroglyphics... See this, the next one, the hieratic... That was actually a kind of a king's language. It was a, of the northern Nile. It was a higher language specifically for kings and the writing that they were doing in their records. So the fact that things were public out there, like here's a big neon sign, 
And then this, there, there was another language that was used in records that not everybody would know that then transformed over time. So we get to Hieratic, and then the Hieratic starts to change to 1400 B.C. And then look at the same, the same word, Ammon, in the hieroglyphics. Look what it has become to by 600 B.C. In a shorthand. It's exactly what it is. It's shorthand. It's written very simply and in a language that who would know? Only the kings and the writers of the record. The common people wouldn't know the language. Does that make sense? So you'd have to learn it. You'd have to be taught this king's language so that you could translate. <clears throat> yeah. to me when people say, well, I think Joseph Smith was like some kind of evil genius. <laughs> We'd have to be more than an evil genius to pull in, in six or seven weeks to pull off the Book of Mormon. <laughs> really? Especially when you get to this level uh, of sophistication? That's crazy. Emma's, Emma's pregnant and uh, they're starving and dad's kind of bothering them and people are trying to steal the plates and Lu uh, Lucy Harris is coming down and trashing the house when they're having to hide the gold plates from Lucy Harris who's gone berserkos on them. I mean there's this whole great story going on around them and then he cranks this thing out in seven or eight weeks and now the best scholars in the world with PhDs in, in Egyptology and stuff like that sort of looking at it and go, this is kind of an amazing document. You think? And it's not Joseph's. The rougher, the more they attack Joseph and the rougher Joseph looks, the better the Book of Mormon looks. That's the amazing part. Okay, you want to say that he had an anger problem? You want to say that he was uneducated? Yep, fire away. He was all of that. Explain the Book of Mormon then from this pumpkin. Because it just, it's just an absolute miracle. By the way, yeah. What's that? That's a really good question. He says, so who was Lehi? Okay. Uh, and, and Lehi is going to have had to learn, because he's working off of the brass plates. And by the way, the brass plates were written in Egyptian. One of the answers we don't have is why were the brass plates, the Hebrew scriptures, written in Egyptian? I have not been able to find an answer to that, but Mosiah said they were written in Egyptian. 
But Lehi had some knowledge, which is going to go, it's going to make sense when, when Nephi is going to go backwards and say, I was taught in the language of my father, right? In other words, I, he would have had to teach me how to read this stuff. Yeah? Which would he possibly have known that as a businessman, Lehi? He probably had to learn Egyptian if he was traveling back and forth to Egypt. That, that's why Laman and Lemuel are more Hebrew names, but Nephi, Nephi is, and we're, we'll talk about this, Nephi is the grain god in Egypt. Yeah, grain god. Yeah, it means, it means grain, it's grain god. In fact, King Tut has like two sheaves of wheat behind him. That's Nephi, the Nephri. Okay? Didn't they have a speak a common Arabic language, the travelers, when by the time Christ was? Born? She said, wouldn't they have had a common language? Well, yes, they're speaking Arabic, or, or uh, not Arabic, um, Aramaic, Aramaic, Aramaic yeah. in Jerusalem. But whoever's the big bully on the block, we're learning our language. So that's going to be Egyptian. And so that's why, for instance, in the time of Jesus, what are most of them speaking in and around Jerusalem? Greek. Why? Because they, they, they've been conquered by the Greeks and the Romans adopted the Greek. That's why our New Testament comes from the Greek into English, not from Aramaic. It's whoever's, whoever's the bully on the block, we're going to learn their language. The Greeks started, I mean, the Romans started speaking Greek. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not Latin. Right. Yeah, they, everybody knew Greek. That's why the, thing, ever, the New Testament was written in Greek. Okay. All right. So anyway, so here, so you get this shorthand in Egypt, and here's what the characters on the plates look like. That look a lot like the shorthand on the far right. Yeah, kind of does. By the way, we think this was a the, the, this character sheet. We think was kind of a a souvenir page that Joseph gave to. Oliver Cowdery at the end of the translation. Sometimes we've assumed that this is what uh, Charles Anthon saw in New York, and it's not. Anthon saw something like this with a translation underneath it. Okay. All right. How's our heads doing? Are a little full? Okay. Are we swimming? All right. <laughs> Just kidding. It's Let's fine. come back here. Okay. I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews. Learning of the Jews may mean things like the poetry of the Jews and the and the the po poetic patterns, the chiasmus and the symbolism and all of that. The learning of the Jews, and then we're going to do it in the. A language of the Egyptian. By the way, why would we do that? You're carving into plates space. We can get more written in a shorter space if we use the Egyptian thing than if we're writing in, in ancient Aramaic. Okay? Just it's an economy kind of thing. Plus, we're also matching what is apparently written on the brass plate, so it's easier to translate that over. All right. Okay. Verse 4. 
And it came to pass at the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. My father having dwelt in Jerusalem, at Jerusalem, somewhere close. Uh, and that year there were many prophets. How about prophet? Many prophets. Uh, prophesying that the people must repent or that great city Jerusalem would be destroyed. Yeah, they're about 20 years out. And it came to pass that my father Lehi, he went to pray on behalf of his people. He's going to pray. There's a pill pillar of fire. He on a rock. He saw much. Because of the things he saw, he had quaked and trembled. Uh, then thus being overcome with the Spirit, he was carried away in a vision. Even then he saw the heavens open, and he thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with numerous concourses of angels, in the attitude of singing and praising God, and he saw the one descending out of the midst of heaven. His luster was that above the sun at noonday. Okay. Wow, that's quite a vision. Okay. This vision is a very specific vision. And it's why he will be persecuted and why they have to leave town. Uh, this um, Yeah. He did. He did. Now, he's actually going to see, Joseph will actually see this thing probably look closer to section 76 of the Doctrine of Covenants. Um, this is called, there's a specific name for this experience. And, I, and it is said, Lehi is, is seeing the, the sowed. The sowed, uh, which in Hebrew, oh, I've got down here, C-O-W-D, the sowed is, is, is called the counsel of God. It is being admitted into this inner circle where you're going to learn the mind and will of God. It would be if, if I was asking one of you and I said, um, what really did, how does President Monson see the world and what, is, what does President Monson really kind of want to have happen? We would guess, right? But what if you had said, you know what? I was just invited to sit in with the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve while they were discussing home teaching. And here is exactly what President Monson was thinking. And here's what Elder Holland said about that. In my presence, because I was in this sacred divine council while they were discussing what needs to happen. That would be a soul. That is a divine, sacred, secret council that isn't widely known to everybody else. But it would mean anybody that has stood in that sowed, in that council, could then walk away and know exactly what the mind and will of the prophet was. Does that make sense? Now, to do it with God, with the numerous concourses of angels, do we have any other examples of sowds, of prophets getting to stand in that divine council? <laughs> Who else in, in, in history has done that? Abraham. Abraham. Well, was it when, I don't know, Adam, when he was preaching to his posterity? Abraham looked up and saw that. Adam. Yeah, a a Adam. Moses. Jacob. Jacob's ladder, right? In fact, I think I've got it. Uh, 
Jacob's ladder. Okay, that he's being he's being admitted into this inner council, and you're getting to see this and hear and know what needs to happen. So would that be what we did before? In a sense, because we stood where? <laughs> right when the and where was the plan presented? In a council in heaven. That was a soul. Those divine councils where we get together and we discuss things. Isaiah has one of those. Isaiah is in the temple. Jeremiah has one. Jeremiah is going to be admitted into the sowed and he's going to make covenants, sacred covenants that you need to make while you're in that presence. Enoch certainly did. It's that those that have stood face to face with God and been admitted to that council, you have understanding and knowledge that when you step out, you now have a responsibility to teach it to others. Oh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were admitted into the sowed. Okay? Now, by the way, here's what I love about this concept. What is it that the brethren have been teaching to try and run the, the affairs of the church forward? Councils. Over and over and over. So in a sense, when the Spirit is present in a ward council, and there are decisions and discussions about what needs to happen, what have we just created? A soul. To, to get that divine knowledge, and then a responsibility and a covenant to take it forward. Do we do the same thing in the temple? Yes, we do. Over and over, there is this, this sense of that, that we're going to get this guidance and we're going to move this forward. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah, talking about this. By the way, any time that you see the word, I actually went through and did a, a search, and almost every time that you're talking about God and counsel, that is, the, word, the Hebrew word is sowed. So he's talking about this specific vision Jeremiah 23, Who hath stood in the sowed in the counsel of the Lord, and hath perceived and heard His word? Who hath marked His word and heard it? Look at 22. For if they, meaning the rulers in Jerusalem, that were so caught up in the law and the Josiah reforms, had they just listened, had stood in my soul, in my counsel, and it caused my people to hear my word, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, not a God afar off? I'm close. I'm inviting you to come into my soul, to, to be taught by me, so I can tell you what to do. The problem is, under the Josiah reforms, what happens to somebody who claims, like Joseph Smith, to have stood in that so in that divine council. Kill them. They're, they're a false prophet. It is extra Torah. It is outside of the law of Moses. That's why they became false prophets. That's why this was a bit of a death sentence for Lehi. For Lehi, like Joseph, to then have that experience, to go stand on a wall in Jerusalem and say... I saw God and His numerous concourses of angels and He said, you guys need to repent. Well, that's a death sentence. To be like Abinadi and say to King Noah, who was 
we think of Deuteronomus. Here's what I've seen and, and, and you need to change. No, they need to be killed. They're false prophets. Burn them at the stake. And it is this. So there, it, there is literally the problem. Uh, he's going to see it. Uh, they're going to come down. He reads the book. Uh, he's filled with the Spirit of the Lord. And it's telling that they need to change. Uh, and then what's going to happen? 19. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he had testified, for he truly testified of the wickedness, and testified of the things which he saw and heard, and manifested plainly of the becoming of a Messiah. How much do we read in the Book of Mormon? or in the Old Testament, about the coming of the Messiah. Not much. And, and you have to go into the Sod. The other, the other way that the Sod is known is when it says Lord of Hosts, or God of Hope, Lord of Hosts especially. When it says that in the Old Testament, that is the God of the Council. That's the God that sits in the Council. Okay? Guess which phrase... God of Lord of Hosts. Guess which book you cannot find this phrase anywhere? Deuteronomy. It's one of those things that that scholars look at and say it's one of those little markers that says because this was a very much a threat, so it was actually probably edited out of Deuteronomy. The Lord of Hosts, the Lord of the of the soul, the Lord of the Council. All right, now. In the time that we've got remaining, let, let me just... Uh, I told you we wouldn't get through first Nephi. I promise we, we will cover more chapters as we go along here. But we, we spent uh, two classes kind of getting setting the table because there's so much here that enables us to see so much better what's going on. Okay, now. When the Jews had heard these things, they were angry with him, even as who? The prophets of old... I don't know what prophet, what, Isaiah? Jacob? You see what they're doing? They're just saying, you're part of the older wisdom theology and not part of the Moses law of uh, the Mosaic law, the Torah. They were angry with him as the prophets of old, whom they had cast out and stoned and slain, and they sought his life that they might take it away. Now, if you want... Here, now, here comes at the end of this first chapter. Here is Nephi's thesis statement for why was the Book of Mormon written? Or at least, why did he write what he wrote and what he chose to write? And what theme is Nephi wanting to make sure that we as Latter-day Saints get very clearly to the bottom of our heart? Why did I write what I write? Why am I showing you what I'm showing? Why did I make sure that this gets into your hands? What is the purpose of my writing? And he's about to tell us. Here's his purpose. Behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you... Who? Us. Us. I will show unto you... And and think about in in our current lives and our current settings and the things that we struggle with. I, Nephi, will show unto you 
that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom He hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty unto the power of deliverance. I need you to know that this is a delivery document. And that He loves you and that His tender mercies are over those He hath chosen. That's my purpose. I will write the next few pages in a way so that you will understand about deliverance. That's what the Book of Mormon is about. Even if we look at the title page, and one of the purposes of this is to prove under the remnant of uh, Israel, meaning the Lamanites, that God hath not forgotten you, that He has remembered His covenants in the title page, that He that he, you're not cast off forever, that I will deliver you out of bondage. Ultimately, one day you will come home. I'll send missionaries out to you with this record to help deliver you and bring you home. Israel is not lost. It's a delivery document. And it's especially important, I think, to those of us who in our daily lives are thinking, I could really use some delivery about now. My life is pretty tough at the moment. I could use some delivery. That's why the Book of Mormon should have a very sweet spirit to us that are looking for, where we feel like we're in captivity and we need to be delivered. As you talk about they realized how Lehi was very much an outsider. He had a very unique situation being told to leave, take his family. No one else was having to do what he had to do. And a lot of times in life we think, but no one else's situation is just like Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it is like... Nobody else has the, the problems that I've got. Yeah. I don't, I, you know, nobody else understands what it's like to be like a, an outsider looking in. Well, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Now, 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 now. So against this backdrop, now let's go back to the most read word verse in all of Mormondom and see if this makes sense. If you understand what Nephi is trying to do, now let's go backwards. Because now it ought to jump out at you. I was taught in the learning of my father. And having seen what? Many afflictions. Do you have some afflictions? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, what? Yeah. Having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days and having a great knowledge of the goodness and mysteries of God. On one hand, I've had afflictions. On the other hand, I've been delivered. I've been delivered with knowledge and understanding. In fact, uh, I like this because if you jump over, he's going to tell you, again, for those of you who feel like you're under captivity and you have some kind of struggle. First Nephi 1, and then I go over to the Psalm of Nephi and 2 Nephi 4. And remember he's saying, man, life has been hard. My brothers have kind of been hard on me. Uh, he's going on and on. Uh, my God has been my support. Uh, led me through afflictions. He's filled me with His love. 
23, he's given me knowledge. Uh, I went through prayer. Oh then, if I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep? And my soul linger in the valley of sorrow, and my flesh waste away. Why should I yield to sin? Why should I give way to temptations that the evil one may have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? Think about those times when you're really struggling in, in your life and your peace is gone. Your peace has been destroyed. And he says, why, why would you do that? Yes, you've had affliction. And let's talk about that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all of that. So here's my, here's my uh, challenge to you. Uh, one of the things that that I work with, what I see a lot in my office, is that uh, I understand when people are going through some kind of grief kind of experience. And part of what I really come to understand is that when we have been through some kind of tribulation and some kind of hurt, we have to grieve. We just have to grieve. There is a grieving period of time. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned to you when I, I was talking about this at Education Week and I had this sweet little lady come up to me uh, and she said, I was married to my husband for 40 years and he died just a few months ago and I can't stop crying. What do I do? And I said, I, would, I wouldn't steal your grief for anything. Go ahead and cry. Be a fully feeling human being, go ahead and go through the grief. I says, if, if a year from now you can't stop crying, alright, let's talk. But for right now, you're entitled to the grief. You lost somebody you love deeply. Grieve. We have to grieve. If you don't grieve, your body holds on to the grief and you get sick. Or if you don't grieve, you, you, you turn off your emotions and you kind of turtle up and you're just not letting any emotions in. Why? Because I don't want to cry. I'm always shocked how many people sit in my office and I have a monster big box of Kleenex. And they start to cry and they go, I'm sorry. For what? Because you're feeling stuff and you should be apologizing to a shrink? Come on. <laughs> Grieve. When we... It is debilitating. I mean, I had the same experience sure. with this lady. And it wears you out. You can't function. Well, that, that's why it is so often when we're around somebody who's grieving, we want to speed them up a little bit. Yeah. I'm uncomfortable with your grief, so why don't you hurry and get over it and be strong so I don't have to feel bad about your grief? So it really, so the reality is when we're trying, when we're saying, well, how's she doing? Well, she's doing very well. What does that mean? She's not crying a lot. Okay, good. Now I can feel better. It's about me. We never say, how's she doing? She's crying a lot. We go, good. That's exactly what needs to happen. There's a period of grief and it just needs to happen. It's supposed to happen. It's part of the deal. Okay? Uh, now, with that then, by the way, when we grieve, it's the same as 
we have the same response in the body as the stress response. The, the, the body's throwing out cortisol into the bloodstream and we have, and, and it's just the, exactly the same response. Okay, we could spend all day talking about that. I mean, uh, the idea of grieving ultimately is that we learn, is that we move to forgiveness. Uh, uh, forgiveness is the last, state, last step of grief. How do I know I've forgiven? Have you grieved? And now are you, and now are you at peace? Forgiveness is about finding peace. And it's the last step in grieving. Uh, how do we know that we've done that? Well, there, there are three essential elements to that. <coughs> we have to not personalize that it was done in some way deliberately tried to hurt us. But here's where I'm trying to get to, and this is where I think it connects with what Nephi is trying to tell us. It's important that we rewrite the story of what happened to us, what we're grieving, to tell ourselves and others a hero story instead of a victim story. What does that look like? It's the life script. When we are, when we're still stuck in a grieving or grudging or victim story, what happens? We repeat it often in our head. How's your life? Well, this they did this to me, or this is what happened, or my mom was really rigid, or uh, uh, this t- horrible thing happened to us, or. Or, or, or. Okay? Not only do we repeat it often in our head, we tell that grievance story over and over to everybody else. Let me introduce yourself. Well, introduce yourself to us. Well, I had a horrible childhood, and this is what happened to me, and this is, you know, and we just tell this grievance story, and we repeat it, and it becomes our life script. It's, it, it takes on our identity. It's who we are. Who am I? Well, I've been, I'm the victim. Ah, I see. Well, Yeah. I'm a very enthusiastic person. Yeah. And I'm happy and sad. And um, my husband, not so much. He's pretty, he's much less feeling than I am. So how do I help him to understand that while he is less feeling, I can't become less feeling than just one area? Ah, that's a good question. Let me think about that. Yeah, he, wa- he wants that you, right? Yeah. Maybe he's got a victim story going on. I'm married to a wife that... Uh, when, 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 she, when she's up, she's really up, and I love her, and when she's down, I'm not so happy. story or the grievance story or the grudging, then we are the victim. We are, we are controlled by somebody else's unfairness. By the way, when we're legitimately grieving, we're saying it, it's, un, it's unfair. We, we hated this thing to happen and it's alright to go ahead and grieve it. But we're still at that moment. How are you doing? Well, you know, I have my good days and my bad days. And I'm supposed to have good days and bad days because that's how it works. What happens, though, is that when we hang on to stuff too long, I've got a sister I haven't talked to for five years. Did we have this argument? 
It hardens our captive self-image. We have been controlled, hurt by somebody else. Remember last, uh, last spring when we were talking about all of these Jews that get carried off into Babylon. And their favorite saying was, Our fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. We are captive because of our fathers and our leaders' bad stuff and we're the ones that got hauled off to Babylon away from home. And it it hardens. Now, so we end up making daily decisions based on that image of ourselves as the victim. (laughs) Now, so here comes Nephi. Here's Nephi's message to us and here I think is is that that message that he's trying to give us. And it is the gratitude story in in contrast. And and I think it begins in Nephi 1. We repeat that gratitude story in our head often. I have had had tribulations all of my days. Nevertheless, what? I've been highly favored by the Lord. And I will show you the tender mercies of the Lord and all those He has chosen. You repeat it over and over in your head, but you also tell that gratitude to other people. That's what Nephi does in the very first verse. He's about to tell you all the hard stuff he went through, but he starts off by saying, you know what, I've been really blessed. I've been really, really blessed in my life. Uh, Nephi, you're the guy that kind of got left you know, in the wilderness for wild beasts, and you're the one that got tied up on the ship, and you're the one that was stuck with those horrible, uh, horrible bad brothers, and you're the one that had to make his sword and fight with the Lamanites. And my, you, No, he, if anybody has a right to a victim story, it would be Nephi. And he says, I've been highly favored to the Lord. The Lord has blessed me. And I will tell anybody who ever reads this book how blessed I've been. He does build an altar, which will get him in trouble with the local Deuteronomist, because he's not supposed to. It's a hint for next week. But you're right, he's going to offer thanks. So I got kicked out of town. I had to leave my stuff behind. I had to take my family and flee into the wilderness. And the first thing I'm going to do is build an altar and give thanks. So that everybody knows how grateful I am in the midst of my tribulations. Perfect point. And everybody's going to know. When we're telling a gratitude story, we tell it inside our head, but to anybody who's going to ask us, I have been really blessed. Really, really blessed. Yeah. Wow, really? Oh. I, yeah, I call that the inner critic. That inner critic inside our head is not, because not only can the inner critic sit and blast us all the time for how bad life is for us, but it, but it has at its disposal uh, audio visual. So it can replay conversations and it show you a video of, of an embarrassing situation you were in, all designed for you to not take very many risks and to remind you that you're a victim and don't expect that you're going to get much out of life. So how do you know when you, you've grieved 
and you've moved into the victim story. I mean, there's kind of a fine. I mean, how do you know when you're really okay? Hold on, let me take a step back. How do you know that you've forgiven? Oh, okay. You're at peace. Okay. Is that when when we have arrived at peace, we have forgiven. If we're not at peace, we haven't. I was watching the, the Mormon channel last night and there was a video of a young man who had had issues with drugs, gone to 12 steps. He went to someone's house for the purpose of drugs. Uh, the guy filled the uh, syringe and said, this is a lot, is it okay? And he said yes and injected himself. And uh, long story short, he jumped three stories down, shattered his hip, his arm, he's had, he was getting ready for the seventh operation on his nose, and he was such a magnificent person because he had become a facilitator in the 12-step meetings because of the experiences that he yeah. had. Yeah, and see, that with someone like that who's been through all these horrible experiences, to then at some point in his journey, when he's grieved and he's forgiven, to then be able to stand somewhere else and say, I am who I am in spite of my past. My past is my past. But I have become what I have in spite of all of that. I have been greatly blessed. The Lord has given me tender mercies. And, and that, that's a hero story. I have become it in spite of rather than it's controlled who I am. He said, I am a drug addict and I am a child of God. Yeah, isn't that cool? It's a perfect example of this. So, we remember but we don't relive. Uh, We're blessed in spite of uh, life's unfairnesses. And we end up molding our self-image of one who is loved and overcomes hard things. That's why I love those kids that are out there going, I can do hard things. Well, not that there are no hard things. There are hard things, but I do... I can do hard things in spite of the fact that they're hard. That's a hero, not a victim. And I believe that is the message of 1 Nephi 1. I have seen tribulation all my days. Nevertheless, I have been highly favored of the Lord. I have been blessed. And the tender mercies of the Lord are over everybody He's chosen, and that includes us. So anybody that starts this path down the Book of Mormon has to go through this portal of 1 Nephi. You've got to walk through that door of the, that. I wrote this in my own hands. I did it. This is my record. And I had tribulation. And I was blessed. And so are you. I think that's, that's how we open the door to the Book of Mormon, if that makes sense. I pray that we can kind of take this in and, and uh, understand really what Nephi is trying to teach us. Because it's pretty powerful when you see it for what it is and how it affects our daily life. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful this day for the many blessings that God has given us. We're especially grateful for the blessing of the audience to teach class and, and starting our week out every week in a pleasurable but also a knowledgeable time. We ask you to bless Brother Nixie that he will be able to continue to do this and that he will. Be willing always to share the knowledge that he has and his testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless us throughout this year that our knowledge of the Book of Mormon will be increased many times and that our testimonies will be strengthened. 
We ask you to guide us in all that we do, and we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, you're.